Well, good morning. Merry uh, Christmas, I guess day after Christmas now, but good to be together with you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Camden. My wife, Kaylin, and I are members here at RBC, and I uh, just love this church community and being part of it. This morning, I'm excited because I get to talk about what might be my favorite theme in the whole Bible, the theme of God with us. This is a theme that we tend to think about most often around Christmas time, uh, most notably in Matthew chapter 1. Maybe you're familiar with this passage where uh, Joseph has a, a dream. Uh, he finds out that Mary is pregnant with a child that is not his. He resolves to divorce her quietly, and then an angel appears to him in a vision in a dream and says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so I know that many of us hear this passage read every year, but I would suspect that with that comes kind of uh, a sense where this passage loses its impact, loses some of its meaning with us. It kind of just becomes a passage you read this time of year because it's about Christmas. So today what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to tell you the story of the entire Bible through the theme of God with us. One way to view the entire Bible is a story of God's personal presence with his people. Our sin that separates us from the presence of God and God's redemptive work to restore us to his presence. And so let's pray this morning and then we will dive into it. Lord Jesus, it is a good thing to sit and to meditate on your word together. I thank you for this opportunity that we have. God, I pray that you would open up our ears to hear what you would say. Um, Lord, allow uh, me to speak by your spirit words that we need to hear not just so that we would understand your word more, but so that we would understand you and know you. God, would you draw us closer to Jesus through your word. Thank you um, so much that you speak to us through it. We turn to it now and thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible opens with God creating life out of darkness. We're told in the creation of Adam and Eve that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living person. Humanity is formed with a unique intentionality that isn't found anywhere else in the creation story. Man and woman, personally and intricately formed, placed in an abundant garden with every good thing and commanded to rule under God's authority and to multiply. The Garden of Eden is the first picture we have of God with us, and it is a good picture. And how much of this relationship did the man initiate? None of it. The man is taken from the ground and formed and breathed life into it. God initiates the relationship. God blesses the relationship. And as we will see, God sustains the relationship even when the first humans cut themselves off from God. The story of the fall is a tragic story of humans choosing to do what is good in our own eyes rather than trusting what is good in God's eyes. The first rift in humanity's relationship with God comes when they choose not to trust him. They take of the one tree that God commanded them not to take. So we're told 
in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking through the garden. And what do they do? They hide. They recognize their nakedness before each other and also before God. And they feel shame and fear. And so they try in vain to cover their shame. And God, we're told on his part, doesn't begin with an accusation, but with a question. Adam, where are you? We can assume that God knows both what they've done and where they're hiding. But this line of questioning shows us something important about God. That even in this moment, God is a relational God. And this is so important to see because it shows us God's posture towards us, even in our sin. When we talk about sin, we often say that sin is a separation between us and God. Maybe you've heard that language. But that language of separation is relational. What's the opposite of separation? It's nearness, fellowship, unity. These are what we're meant to experience with God. Now, separations can be legally binding, right? As in the case of a husband or a wife or maybe a parent and a child. But the root of the problem is something has gone wrong in the relationship. And in the case of God and us, the problem is ours, not God's. And when we cut ourselves off from the source of life, the inevitable consequence is death. But sometimes I think that we assume that separation is what God wants, too. Perhaps your view of God is that of an angry judge or a disappointed father who gets fed up with you and wants nothing more than to get you out of his sight. And if that's your view of God, that's ever your view of God, then I want to tell you that there's good news. And the good news is that as you read the story of the Bible, what you find is not a God who is often looking to throw his people off, but a God who comes closer and closer and draws nearer and nearer to them. Even when God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden, we're told that he does it so that Adam and Eve don't eat from the tree of life and live forever in a state of eternal death. One of the last details we're told in Genesis 3 before the man and woman leave the garden is that God made clothes for them and he clothed them. I love that little detail that's thrown in there, that he clothed them. God himself comes to them, even in their sin, to make provision, to cover their nakedness and shame, and he himself applies it to us. Now, the opening pages of the Bible show us God's desire to live in relationship with humanity. They also show our intentional separation from God. And finally, they show that God's posture towards us, even in our sin, is to draw near to us. This story is foundational to understanding the entire Bible. Specific, specifically, for our interest in the presence of God, it raises an important question. And the question is, how will God and man again be reunited? If that is the goal, if that is the aim, then how is God going to do it? And the answer, maybe not surprisingly, is that all of it will be initiated by God. Beginning in Genesis 12, we read the story of Abraham, God's promise to him. Abraham did nothing to deserve God's blessing, just like Adam and Eve. In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
Now listen to what God just did. He picked this one guy out of all the, all the people living on the planet and said, I'm going to make an eternal promise with you and to your offspring to be your God. Now why is that significant? In the ancient world, there were any number of deities that you could choose to worship depending on your needs. If you need a God to help you with good fields, you could go find that God and offer a sacrifice to that God. But none of those gods ever said to a human, hey, I'm going to make an eternal covenant with you. People choose gods, not the other way around. But in this story, God chose a person and promised to bless the world through him. God promises that all nations, the entire world, will be blessed through Abraham. So this isn't just about this one man and this one nation, but it echoes that all of humanity is going to be blessed through this promise. This pattern picks up steam in Exodus. God tells Moses when he encounters him and sends him to the people of Israel to say to them in Exodus 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up from under the burden of the Egyptians. In Exodus 19, the people of Israel are freed from their bondage to Egypt. They come through the wilderness and they arrive at Mount Sinai and God makes a promise to those people. He says in verse 5 of Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. But how is God going to do it? In the later parts of Exodus, Moses gets instructions for the tabernacle and, and the priesthood. And if you've ever read through your Bible from kind of the beginning to the end, maybe you do the Bible in a year or you just try to like start at the beginning and go from there, this is the part of the Bible where you start to lose steam. The, uh, the lines start to blur a little bit more. You're reading about uh, measurements and materials and priestly ordination rituals, and you're thinking, what is going on? Good news, that's exactly the question you should be asking. What is going on through these rituals, through these practices? Why is God commanding Moses to build a tabernacle and to consecrate priests? We get an answer in Exodus 29, starting in verse 44. God says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that, or so that, I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, humanity, because of our sin, we are unable to enter the presence of God. That separation is permanent and unable to be bridged from our side. We cannot take initiative to get to God. And yet God chooses through Israel's tabernacle and priests to dwell among his people. Abraham heard God's voice, but now the people of Israel get to have God's presence in the camp with them. And here we arrive at Exodus 33, which we heard this morning read for us. In this passage, the people of Israel have just sinned about against God in the golden calf story. God tells Moses to take the people into the promised land, but God himself will not go because the people are sinful and stubborn. And there's this beautiful dialogue between Moses and and God in the first and the last parts of the chapter where Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known 
that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, what was it Moses says that sets Israel apart? It's the fact that their God is with them. No other nation could claim that. And God responds by saying, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. In the book of Leviticus, God repeats his promise. He says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, maybe you're starting to hear this echo something that's repeated along the lines of, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is maybe the central phrase that carries this idea of God's presence with his people forward in the Bible. And it gets repeated in one form or another, not not five times, not 10 times, but some 28 times through scripture. This is not a minor theme. God repeats his commitment to humanity to dwell with his people again and again and again. The tabernacle was like an echo of Eden, a way that God could be near his people if they would listen to him in a way that Adam and Eve failed to do. And so the question is, how did Israel do? Did they listen to God? Did they get to live in his presence? Or did they repeat the mistakes of Adam and Eve and choose their own way again? And I think you know the answer to that question. Listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah, writing now several hundred years later in Israel's history. In Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, he looks back on Israel's history, and this is what uh, God says through Jeremiah. For in the day that I brought them, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave to them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the uh, the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers." So what's the problem? I'll give you a hint. We are. Israel consistently chooses their own way and moves backward from God, not toward him. And God, on his part, sends prophets, these messengers, with words from God day after day, continually. This is not a lack of initiative on God's part. And yet, Israel would not listen. And so that's it, right? God gave them a chance for literally hundreds of years. And we consistently turn our backs on him. So God hands the people over to their enemies. Kingdom of Babylon destroys Judah. The people are taken into exile. And we think rightly, God is done and he's never coming back. That's what should happen. But that's not what happens. Instead of moving further away, we actually find that God intends to move even closer Later in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you hear that relational language of a husband and a wife? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God's promise towards a rebellious, backsliding people is to move closer. This promise gets expanded by Ezekiel, who is totally jiving with this development of, I will be their God and they will be my people, and uses it seven different times in the writings of Ezekiel. He develops this language, not just by repeating it, but by telling us how it will happen. God says in Ezekiel 34, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. That's a little odd when you think about the fact that David had been dead for hundreds of years. But God promised David that a king would come from his lineage who would reign forever and who would be a son to God. And here Ezekiel sees that these two things are united, God's presence as our God and this promised son of David. We get another angle in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So not only is God promising a king who will come to reign forever, but God will actually place his spirit, his presence inside us in order to give us new hearts. Now listen to how all of this comes together in Ezekiel 37. God says, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So are you seeing this? Are you seeing the the themes and the melodies begin to weave together into uh, a beautiful melody? A promise of God that he made to Abraham and David is carrying humanity forward to a place where they will multiply and he will set his dwelling place with them forever. And the result is not just that Israel lives in fellowship to God. Listen to this last verse again. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when I set my sanctuary in their midst forever. This is the clearest picture yet of how God is going to restore his presence with his people by placing a king over them forever, making an eternal covenant with them, and setting his dwelling place in their midst forever so that the nations will know that he's the Lord. This is an incredible picture. Imagine hearing this as an Israelite, right? Ezekiel actually is writing at a time when the people of Israel have been exiled. They're living in a foreign land under foreign rule. 
They think that God has abandoned them. God warned them. Exile was the ultimate consequence. And they didn't listen. Ezekiel actually has a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. You would be so convinced that God is done with you, that he finally gave up on you, that he's finally had enough. And then you hear the words of Ezekiel. God isn't done. He hasn't walked out on you. Actually, he's laying the groundwork to be closer than ever before. Israel had no idea how far God was going to go to be near to them and to us. Listen to these words from across the New Testament. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you hear the resounding thunderclap of God fulfilling his promise? God himself, majesty and holiness that we could not approach himself becomes skin and bone to draw near to us. The promised king, the promised kingdom, the promised forgiveness, the promised presence, it all happens in Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have what we could never have on our own, nearness to God. And the New Testament highlights this repeatedly. Ephesians 2, Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. That passive language of been brought near means we did not come near, we were brought near near by somebody else. The book of Hebrews six times tells us to draw near to God. I love the verse that says, because of Jesus, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not a uh, shy, nervous, I guess I can approach God now. This is a confidence, bold assurance that we can enter into the presence of God. 
I love how James says it so, so plainly. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In Jesus, we have full forgiveness, assurance of faith, and confidence to draw near to God because of his sacrifice for us on the cross. We have new hearts and are being made into new creations by the one who rose again from the dead and sent his spirit to live in our hearts, just as he promised. And so I don't know if this Christmas season was everything that you hoped it would be or if maybe it was disappointing. But today I want to remind you of tidings of great joy that do not change. In the first chapter of Matthew, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And what does Jesus say to his followers on the last page of Matthew? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. One commentator pointed out that Jesus saying that he will be with us always is emphasized. And literally in Greek, it means that he will be with us the whole of every day, i.e. each day as we live it. I love that. Behold, I am with you each day as you live it. Because of Christ, that which previously separated us from God's love is removed. And we are assured that nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so if you know and trust Jesus, this is such good news. The Apostle Paul wrote in the passage we read this morning from 2 Corinthians 5 that this is the ministry we've been given. This is the message that God has entrusted to us. A ministry of telling the world that in Jesus the Messiah, God is not counting our trespasses or sins against us. And if you don't know Jesus, then hear the appeal that we read this morning in that same passage. Be reconciled to God. You don't have to be separated from him anymore. You can be united to a God who loves you so much that he literally died to be with you. Because of Jesus, you never have to be alone again. So as we close, we turn our gaze to the last page of the Bible where John the writer sees this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the good news that is brought to us with the declaration of Emmanuel, God with us. It's a promise that is written across the pages of scripture from beginning to end for all who are far off and for those who are near. I was thinking about the song that the kids sang for us last week during the service. The words, the second verse went like this. Have you heard of the promise God has made to us all that if we turn from our sinful ways and put our faith in his son, he will freely forgive us 
He will wash us clean. And when we stand before his throne, he will shout, welcome in. Let's pray. God, we long for the day when we shall know you fully, even as we have been fully known by you. You know us in our sin and our weakness, and yet you desire to draw close to us. Lord, in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins, and we desire to lay hold of that by faith in Christ. Until the day that you come, Lord, may the message of reconciliation be close on our lips and on our hearts, both for those that we would share it with and for ourselves. Thank you, God, that the Bible testifies of your desire to be with us, even though we don't deserve it. And thank you, Jesus, that because of your death and your resurrection, you are with us now. And each day, as we live it, to the end of the age. Amen.